Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, listeners. We're so happy to be with you again through this podcast. Yes, hello. Thanks for tuning in, faithful yeah. listeners and yes, new listeners. That's right. Maybe there are listeners out there. Raise your hand if this is your first time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see anything, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Thanks for raising your Thanks for playing, as we yes, say. Thanks right? for playing. Um, yeah, we're getting ready. We're recording right now, um, just as you're getting ready to start teaching a course. When you're listening to this, the course has already happened. Right. So we have to when do I'm that. teaching these intensives, we kind of stack up our recordings in advance. Sure. So because I need a week off from recording to to do what I need to do in the classroom. And we're just about to offer one of my favorite courses to teach. My absolute favorite, I think I said this on the last podcast, is the Marian Mystery course. My second, well, maybe, I was about to say this is my second favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, it's probably tied. Second favorite is this one, uh, TOB2, with what used to be called TOB3, now we call it TOB not 3, <laughs> TOB in the New Evangelization. But anyway, I'm teaching next week, and by the time you listen to this, I will have already completed teaching TOB2. What I love about TOB2 is we do a deep dive into the Song of Songs. What is the Song of Songs? If you don't know about the Song of Songs, you need to know about the Song of Songs. You probably heard about the Song of Songs. Maybe you've even read the Song of Songs and you thought, what? What's this doing in the Bible? Why is this guy talking about his wife's breasts as twin fawns prancing across a field? Why does he compare her nose to the Tower of Lebanon? I don't get it. Well, if you are like that, I can totally relate. Remember, Wendy, we were newly married 26 years ago. Yeah. And I thought it would be a great idea as newlyweds to read the Song of Songs together. Do you remember this? No. You don't remember this? <laughs> But that, that was my mean... other wife. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I forgot. <laughs> I never had another wife, in case you were wondering. Um, no, we. I thought it would be so romantic and so holy. And, you know, the saints love this. And JP2 loves Song of Songs. So you and I should love the Song of Songs. And we read it early in our marriage together. And I didn't get it at all. Mm. If you were one of those people, you read the Song of Songs and it just goes, <whistles> like sails over your head. I can relate. It has taken 26 years of married life and a deepening of my intimacy with the Lord, uh, a real cracking open of my heart to become one who can kind of sort of get poetry. I didn't really used to get poetry. Mm -hmm. I didn't really used to understand art. Uh, art is the language of the heart, and if you're if you're not in touch with your heart, you're not going to get art, and you're not going to get the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is kind of a measure of, of how in touch we are with the deepest longings of our hearts and how those longings point to our union with God. Erotic love poetry, smack dab in the Bible, what's it doing there? The saints have written more commentaries on this erotic love poetry than any other book in the Bible. What did they know that we need to get in on? They know, the saints know, as Pope Benedict XVI articulated, 
that the Song of Songs, this great erotic sacred love poetry, expresses, again I'm quoting Benedict XVI, Song of Songs expresses the essence of biblical faith. What is the essence of biblical faith? Pope Benedict says that our deepest yearning, our deepest aspiration is not just a dream. What is our deepest aspiration? Eternal union with the ecstasy of divine love. That's what the Song of Songs leads us to. That's why I love teaching TOB2, because we do this deep dive into this erotic sacred love poetry, and to see my students encountering this uh, and it breaking open for them and it opening windows of deep intimacy with, with Jesus and with Mary, because in the liturgy of the church, the Song of Songs comes up most often on the feast days of Mary. Yeah. Because she ultimately, she's the bride. She's the bride in the Song of Songs. Uh, she, is, she is in that line of the song where it says, uh, Who is this woman, uh, brighter than the sun, more radiant than the moon? Uh, this woman is Mary. And we can also recognize, I mean, we recognize Mary throughout the Song of Songs, but one of my favorite lines in the Song of Songs is when the bride says, Come, O north wind, come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden. Let its fragrance be wafted abroad. I hear in those words, and the church hears in those words, the response of Mary to the message of the angel, right? How will this happen? How will I conceive the Son of God? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will enter your womb. And that's what we're hearing here. Come, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. What do the saints smell when Mary shows up? Roses. Roses, roses. They smell a rose garden. Yeah. Uh, but I often, I, I love pointing out often to my students that um, when we understand cosmology properly, like, and by that I mean the order of creatures in the cosmos, mm -hmm. Mary doesn't smell like roses. Roses smell like Mary. Right? The lower creatures. What's a rose? A rose is one of nature's most beautiful reproductive organs. The fertility of the lower creatures is imitating Mary. It doesn't go the other way around. It's not, Mary's not trying to imitate the flowers. The flowers are trying to imitate Mary. Anyway, that's, all the that's just a little window into the glory we crack open in TOB2. If you ever want to take TOB2, guess what? You have to take TOB1 first. That is true. So check out our course schedule in the show notes and consider taking either online or in, por in person uh, TOB1. If you've already taken TOB1, consider taking TOB2. We're going to be offering it online sometime in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I think in even before the end of this year, 2020, 2021, I think we're offering TOB2. So check out the link in the show notes. Ready for a question? Yes, let's do it. Okay. This is from a patron named Lisa. Hello, Lisa. While I was baptized Catholic and received the sacraments, I was not raised in a family that practiced the faith. I'm a married mother of three children, but felt that something was missing in my life. I had a profound conversion while attending a Curcio weekend three years ago. Since then, my husband has grown further and further away from me because he says I have, quote, changed. We've tried four different marriage therapists, 
but when it comes to him making changes and really putting in effort, he quits going and says he doesn't need to change anything. If I go to him and tell him I want to pursue not only learning theology of the body, but also living it out in our marriage, it may be the last straw for him. So my question is, how can I pursue this without him on board? How can I teach this to my children if they don't see it at work in their own home? Bless you, dear Lisa. Bless you. Bless you. I, I sense your, your deep love of Jesus. Since also your deep love of your husband and your children. And I, I also sense the deep quandary that you are in. I can, I can almost feel it. I can almost taste it. And uh, I, I, I hope what Wendy and I have to share with you here, just as we open our hearts to you, I hope it will speak heart to heart. Lisa, there is no preventing you from loving Jesus more and more. And the fruit of loving Jesus more and more will be that you love your husband more and more as he is. And what I sense in what you've reported of what your husband has said that he goes to therapy and then he says, he kind of gives up and says, well, I don't need to change. There's nothing in my life that needs to change. That is what you would call a stronghold of pride. And I'm not saying this to scold your husband or shame him or condemn him. This is the human condition. This is what we have inherited through original sin. Every human being needs continually to change to grow, to mature, to, to become more and more the man or the woman he or she is created to be. No one can claim, I've arrived at who I'm destined to be in this life. This life is, is ongoing maturation. This life is a journey of ongoing growth, and growth here means change. That's, we change as we grow. We, yes. As we mature, we, we change. To, to kind of dig your, your heels in the ground and say, I don't need to change, is saying, I don't need to grow. I don't need to mature. Um, it's, it's really a refusal to let the Lord redeem us, right? It's, it's almost saying, and in, in some way is saying, I don't need a Savior. I'm okay. I'm, I'm just fine as I am. And again, I'm not saying this, saying this to shame him or scold him or condemn him, but I, I, I want to say this, I hope, Lisa, to turn the lights on for you so that you can recognize what you are dealing with here. Now, here's the good news. Christ came into the world to save us from our pride, right? How, how does God deal with our pride? It's a kind of crazy thing that he does. God, you could say, punishes our pride by humbling himself. What? What? This is our God. He, he punishes our pride by saving us from it, by humbling himself. I, I, think, it was, I think it was Pope Paul VI, now St. Paul VI, who at the end of the Second Vatican Council said, 
that in Christianity, the, the man who makes himself God encounters the God who makes himself man. In other words, the creature who, who raises himself to the level of the Creator out of pride encounters the Creator who in humility lowers himself to the level of the creature. John Paul II, in a, a marvelous retreat that he delivered to artists in 1962, uh, and here's a little plug for you, the Theology of the Body Institute is publishing this month, November of 2021, we are publishing at long last the first English translation of this retreat. It's called God is Beauty. And the final lesson of this retreat, we'll have a, if you want to learn more, um, forgive my shameless plug of the book, uh, but if you want to learn more, check out the link in the show notes to that, to that release. And the final lesson of this retreat, Carol Wojtyla talks about the humility of God, the humility of God in Jesus Christ, and how Jesus's humility saves us from our pride. What I, what I want to proclaim to you, Lisa, is that Christ already has a perfect plan to save your husband from this pride, and you are part of it, Lisa. You are, as his wife, you are his number one intercessor. And the, as I was saying earlier, the deeper intimacy, the deeper the intimacy that you experience with Jesus, the deeper love you will have for your husband, and that love will show itself in humility in a humility that, that in a certain sense, shames your husband's pride. And by that, I, I don't mean scolds him or condemns him. I mean convicts him of his pride. Uh, we are convicted of our pride when we are confronted with genuine humility. And, and I would invite you into that prayer, that you, Lisa, would grow in the face of your husband's pride, that you would grow in humility, through your ever-deepening intimacy with Jesus. And I'll say one more thing here, and, and then, Wendy, I know you have some wisdom to pass on as well, so I'll, I'll pass it to you. But the, the one last thought I want to share, Lisa, you asked, how can we be a witness to this in our family, to our children, when it's not being lived? Lisa, there's nothing to prevent you from living out the theology of the body in your life. Uh, you are called to intimacy with Jesus, and that's what the theology of the body is the invitation to. Your husband has no way of preventing you growing in intimacy with Jesus, in true spousal union with Jesus. And again, the more you love Jesus, the more you'll love your husband, the more you'll love your children, and your children will see the witness in you, in your humble love, of what it truly means to follow Jesus and live the theology of our bodies. So there's no obstacle there. Uh, there are, there are uh, apparent obstacles. There are, there are things in your marriage that make it difficult, obviously, to live this out in a communion with your husband, but there's another kind of communion you can have with your husband as his main intercessor, where you offer his pride to the Lord to be melted. And that's JP2's expression in this retreat God is beauty. He says, when the prideful person encounters the humility of God, 
the pride in the prideful person melts. That's my prayer for you, Lisa, that you would become such a burning flame of God's love in your marriage, which is to say a burning flame of his humility, that that burning flame of your humility melts your husband's pride. Hmm. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? I love that when you said, um, Lisa, that you had a profound conversion, that, that those words just keep resonating in my heart. And I am so grateful to the Lord for his personal love for you that was poured out on that retreat. I'm grateful to those who put on the retreat, those who publicized it and invited you. Yes, I'm thank you, so Lord. glad that you went. Yes. And I pray you never regret that because that is your life beginning to really shine in the way that God intended it to shine, to shine the light that only you can shine in the world, that only you can shine in the lives of the people closest to you. And so I'm just, I just wanted to pause and thank the Lord for the incredible work that he's already done in your life. I don't know, Lisa, if you're a journaler, but Christopher and I have both found over the years that um, growing in relationship with the Lord for us has been helped by keeping journal entries where we just record important insights or our struggles um, that we're opening up to the to the Lord and his love. And I just could see that being a great help for you, both in working out struggles, but also to have a reference to look back. I find this very helpful to look back at the especially graced moments. What did you experience on that retreat? Has it ever been written down? Can mm. you revisit what you sensed was coming into your heart on that retreat? And can you go back there and encounter again through revisiting it? And that is that is a beautiful practice in our prayer lives to do that. I think that there's a, a well of strength for you in going forward and in learning more about theology of the body that's right there in that moment in your life and your incredible encounter with the Lord. So that was what was striking me as I was reflecting on this question was um, to encourage you to find that as a particular a particular way to grow closer to the Lord because that in your situation where you have a husband who's Christopher mentioned the expression, the, the stronghold of pride that's going on there, that just resistance um, to really uh, look at his own issues, um, that, that leaves you in a place where you are going to be at times very frustrated and disappointed. Certainly not always. I hope that you see good in your relationship and that that can be encouraged to grow, but there are definitely going to be frustrations and disappointments. And that's where it's going to be so important to continually deepen your relationship with the Lord, because he can help you to see things in a new way. He can help you to experience compassion for the very one who is you know, causing you these frustrations. So that is only possible through the grace that comes through the Lord. And you you know that, Wendy, through firsthand experience, through pain that I've caused you, uh, 
where you have learned how to open that pain to the Lord and offer it as intercession for me, and I have seen the fruit of that intercession in my life. What a privilege it is in married life to be each other's main intercessors. And even if one of the spouses doesn't understand that at all, that can that cannot prevent the spouse who feels called really to live vocation as the Lord intends it. Uh, Lisa, you really can live out this call you have to be an intercessor for your husband. And that intercession will bear fruit. Uh, you may not, I mean, it's possible you may not see that fruit in this life, but you will see the fruit of your intercession in the next life, if not in this life. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on you're going to see it in this life. That's I just think that's what the Lord's going to do. Your intercession, your love is real. And when love goes out from a human heart, it does not come back void. Uh, just in closing, Lisa, I want to point you to three, I think, very helpful resources to you, uh, point them out to you, and they are available to you as a, a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute. Thank you, Lisa, for your ongoing support of the work that we do. You will see on your personal patron uh, homepage, these three retreats that have already, uh, actually two of them have already been recorded. One will be recorded and presented live actually in December, but here are the two that are already on your patron website, and I'll tell you about the third one. The first retreat it was one offered by Father Timothy Gallagher, and I, I hosted that and offered some insights of my own as well, and that, it, Timothy Gallagher is an expert in the spirituality and the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and he can help guide you, and this retreat will help guide you, uh, through the a, a deepened interior life, a discernment of spirits, which means, what's moving me right now? Is this the Lord? Is this my own, uh, my own thought? Is it a thought from the enemy? Learning the way uh, that Ignatius laid out for us, and it really is a gift to the entire church, that will help you profoundly in your own interior journey and in your struggles with your husband. So please take advantage of that retreat that is already available to you as a patron. The second retreat that we've offered our patrons that will be of help to you, this was just about a month ago. I was uh, helping to host a retreat with the team from Desert Stream Ministries. Uh, Andrew Kamiski uh, was uh, leading that with Marco and with Abby on their team, and I was part of it as well. And it's about healing from relational and sexual wounds. So I'd invite you to, to take part in that retreat on the patron website. And in December, just a, a month away, we're going to be having another retreat for our patrons that Dr. Bob Schutz and I will be leading. Dr. Bob Schutz has been a longtime friend of Wendy's and of mine. He does excellent, excellent work helping people to look at the wounds in their lives, the fears in their lives, the blocks in their lives that prevent them from living out the theology of the body in an integral and fruitful way. So you'll want to take advantage of that as well. All our patrons will, of course, be notified uh, when that is happening, so stay tuned for that. I hope that's of help to you, Lisa. God bless you, and thank you again for your ongoing support of our work. And I just wanted to ask the length of each of those retreats approximately oh yes the they're they're just a few hours so we we do it on a saturday typically or an afternoon during the week 
and they're usually about three to four hours. Okay. Uh, yeah, with with notes and exercises and reflections and okay. and yeah, an encouragement to to grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord. Thanks for that clarification, Wendy. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. In a recent conversation about the resurrection of the body, a friend of mine told me that she doesn't believe our resurrected bodies will be male or female in heaven. Her reasoning is that because the Bible says we're neither married nor given in marriage in heaven, then the sexual difference is no longer necessary in eternity. Also, since we're made in the image of God, who is pure spirit and therefore neither male nor female, she thinks that our glorified bodies will more perfectly image God by becoming gender neutral. In light of John Paul II's theology of the body, what is the proper response to my friend's ideas? Does the Catholic Church have any official teaching on this? And if so, is there anything in the Catechism or the Bible about it? Thank you. Thank you for this question. These are the kinds of questions I love because they give me opportunity to clarify some tragically misunderstood ideas that are, are rather widespread out there, such as this. John Paul II is abundantly clear. He says it on multiple occasions in his Theology of the Body, and he's drawing here right from St. Thomas Aquinas, who is also very clear on this point. We will be raised as male and female. There is nothing, this is the biblical truth, this is the truth that you will find in the Catechism. There is nothing about the goodness of our creation that is lost in the resurrection. Rather, everything that God looked upon in the natural order that He created, right, male and female, He created them, and He blessed them, and He said, be fertile and multiply. Behold, it is very good that we are created this way. Nothing of our goodness in the order of our creation will be erased uh, or deleted in the resurrection of the body. Rather, it will be taken up in glory, fully redeemed and completed in our resurrected bodies. So John Paul II says, without hesitation, we are raised as male and female. Gender neutrality was never part of God's plan. Jesus says, have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? There's the fundamental biblical truth, Christ himself pointing us back to the original creation. The original creation before sin entered the world is the perfect foreshadowing of our ultimate destiny. We will be raised in glory according to the original pattern of our creation. So that being firmly established, now I can go to the next part of the question, which was, well, why does Jesus say in the resurrection we're no longer given in marriage? And your friend was saying, well, that must mean we're no longer male or female. We're no longer given in marriage in the resurrection because we no longer need a sign to point us to the marriage of the Lamb when we are living and participating in the marriage of the Lamb, right? The union of man and woman here on planet Earth in marriage, John Paul II says, is 
just the historical expression of the sexual difference. But in the resurrection, we will experience the ultimate purpose of the sexual difference, which is what? To lead us into the great mystery of Christ's spousal union with the church. Here's how we could look at the communion of saints. And in doing this, I will provide an answer to that other point in the question about St. Paul saying, in Christ we're no longer male or female. We are one body, right? No longer male or female. Well, what enables male and female to become one body? Precisely the sexual difference, right? When a man and a woman become one body, it's not that their difference gets erased. Their difference gets fulfilled. It's expressed. The difference shows its end, its purpose. But again, the the end of sexual union for the sexual difference is only the natural end. There is a supernatural end to the sexual difference, which is what? The communion of saints in communion with Christ in communion with the Trinity. <laughs> what does this mean? It means somehow, some way, I don't know how, I haven't been there, but in the resurrection, in a virginal way, not in a genital union kind of way, but in a virginal way, all that is masculine in our humanity will be in union with all that is feminine in our humanity, and that one unity, that one communion of all the saints will be the bride, right? We are one body, one body in Christ, right? That the one body we will be will be the bride who is forever in union with the bridegroom. Notice how maleness and femaleness, bridegroom, bride, all of these truths are carried forward into the resurrected reality. They're not deleted. They're not erased. They're fully redeemed and completed in the marriage of the Lamb. Christ's masculinity is not erased in his ascension into glory. Mary's femininity is not erased in her assumption, bodily assumption, into glory. And nor will your masculinity or femininity be erased. Now, let me also address this, that sometimes we can hope for a gender neutrality in the resurrection because in this life, the gender distinction has been such a source of, of pain and tension and conflict. Here's the good news. All pain, all tension, all conflict is healed, is brought to glory, is brought into perfect communion. Everything is reconciled. When, when Paul says there's no longer male or female, all are one in Christ, he's, he's not erasing the sexual difference, but he is saying there is the erasing of the conflict. And the erasing of the conflict is precisely what allows that which is masculine and that which is feminine not to be in war any longer, not to be in conflict, but to be in perfect harmony, perfect communion without erasing the distinction, right? And all of this is based on the fundamental reality of the Trinity, which is not sexual. God is not sexual. That is absolutely true. God is not sexual. However, God is an eternal communion of three persons, a perfect unity in distinction, 
right? It is the distinction of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that allows their communion, just as it is the distinction of male and female that allows our communion, right? To erase the distinction is to erase the possibility of an authentic human communion. Nothing gets erased. It gets fully redeemed, fully completed in the resurrection of our bodies. We become who we've always been destined to be as male and female. And let's also say this, if there was gender confusion here, that's gone. If there was ambiguous genitalia here, that's gone, right? Remember the blind man in the Gospels, why was this allowed? Why did this happen? And Jesus responds to reveal the glory of God. Some people experience tragic birth defects. Some people have ambiguous genitalia. It's true. But in the beginning, God created the male and female. And in the resurrection, at the end of time, those who had ambiguous genitalia will be fully revealed as the man or the woman that God always created him or her to be. Mm. You know, this topic of the resurrection in, has big name in theology of the body. is called eschatological man. And I know sometimes when you are reading that portion of JP2's writings, you get super excited. I can hear it in your voice right now. You know, sometimes we'll hear Christopher kind of groaning. (laughs) Like, what's wrong? Oh, (laughs) he's just so excited for our glorified experience. And I, I hear that in, in your answers, just, just that sense of what we don't know what's in store, but we know it's good. And we know these truths that are true will never not be true. Yes, yes, yes. And that's so awesome. Sexuality, meaning the male-female difference, is not a trifle. It is not a footnote. It is not merely an attribute of our humanity that could change or shift. As John Paul II says, our creation as male and female is constitutive (laughs) of our humanity. That means it constitutes our humanity. And what constitutes our humanity here will not be done away with. It will be fully redeemed, as I've said so many times. And, And yes, 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 we must recognize eye has not seen, ear has not heard, Uh, nor has it even dawned on us what God has prepared. But John Paul II says, what we will experience in the next world, in the resurrection, is in no way alien to us. It is not disconnected from the original and fundamental truth of our creation as male and female in the image and likeness of God. So, let us, let us let that truth sink deeply into our hearts and liberate us uh, from any fear of, of how we are created. Uh, there's nothing that needs to be erased here. Yes, we need to be redeemed, uh, but nothing needs to be uh, done away with. That's a, a false notion of creation, fall, and redemption. In the words of the prophet Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> but I could say much more. I'm disciplining myself. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. For the sake of one more question. Okay. Well, we have a question from Emily. Hello, Emily. Thank you so much for this podcast. My husband is suffering from a mental health issue, and lately it has made our lives difficult. I have never had any issue with fidelity in the past, but the last months it has become a daily inner fight. Oh, bless you, Emily. Bless you. 
could you please remind me what I'm fighting for? Emily, you are fighting for your eternal destiny and your husband's. This is what we commit to at the altar. And notice, we commit to it at an altar, an altar of sacrifice. We commit to this under a crucifix, a crucifix of a crucified, suffering bridegroom. And we are committing to what? We are committing to love as Jesus loves, freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. The temptation away from those commitments is always a temptation that is saying, here, you can have what you want without the cross. You can have what you want without the suffering. Marriage, when it is lived as it is meant to be lived, takes us into the very heart of what happened at the cross. John Paul II says that spouses are the constant reminder to the world of what happened at the cross. The marriage commitment is the commitment to love as Jesus loves, and that means, as I heard a bishop say many years ago, marriage is going to involve four rings. You're going to have an engagement ring, you're going to have two wedding rings, and you're going to have suffering. And when we are suffering greatly, when we are feeling the crown of thorns pressing into our scalps, when we are feeling the nails going through our hands, when we are feeling the scourging, when we are feeling the, the, the lance getting thrust into our side, the sweet-sounding voices of the enemy can be very tempting. And in one way or another, the voice is saying, come down off that cross. Jesus loves you. He can't possibly want you to suffer this much. You come down from that cross. To which we should respond, get behind me, Satan. Why should we endure the cross? Why did Christ endure the cross? For the joy and the glory set before him, Christ endured the cross. So, Emily, I want to invite you into a deep, prayerful reflection on the glory set before you. I want you to imagine your marriage glorified. I want you to imagine your husband rejoicing for all eternity that he is there in large measure because of the graces that flowed through the fidelity of your sacrament. Now, marriages are never perfect, right? No spouse is perfect. And if there already has been infidelity in a marriage, thanks be to God, there is mercy, there is grace, there is healing, there is reconciliation. But there's no married couple on the planet who will tell you that entering into that healing and reconciliation from infidelity is easy, right? It is much easier to resist the temptation to infidelity than it is to heal from having committed infidelity. So I, I invite you, dear Emily, 
keep your eyes on the prize. Enter into that scripture for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. I'll share one story. And I, I'm, I probably shared this on this podcast previously, but it, it bears repeating. St. Faustina had a vision of the different degrees of glory in heaven. And she said, Lord, if you would grant me one more degree of glory for eternity, I would bear in my own body the suffering of all the martyrs combined. What? What kind of glory did St. Faustina glimpse? St. Faustina, pray for Emily that she would catch a glimpse of the glory that you glimpsed, and that she would see, as St. Paul says, she would see her sufferings are as nothing compared to the glory that awaits her in remaining faithful to the sacrament of marriage. Wendy, any any thoughts? I just can sense that as you are pointing out so well here about the spiritual battle that's going on in this marriage, I think sometimes we need someone to show us that. Yeah. You know, we are just experience we don't see the demons flying around like in a horror movie right we just are living our lives and we're thinking this is our own thought or our own desire we don't recognize always that there there really are enemies of our bond of our marriage of our own souls individually and of our marriage that are attacking and this does sound like a time of a tremendous attack and so i am really glad that you were using that, you know, pointing out that there is a battle, um, and the, the, the lie, it would be so much easier. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is hard. Yeah. And it is hard. It is and hard. I don't, I don't yeah. mean to say that in a mocking way. Yes. I have felt it. I know that, um, it's, it's truly hard, but that's, that's the sneakiness of the evil one. You, your promises at the altar, how beautifully you called her also to remember that. It's it's not a guarantee that all will be fulfilling and happy and as we want it to be. Uh, it's, it's a giving of yourself for the good of one another. And I pray, Emily, that as you are suffering, I hope that what we've shared will renew your sense, not just of why you're fighting, but but how to fight, how to recognize the lie that, you know, the evil one is trying to sell you in these um, temptations. And when you recognize it as a lie and unable to truly fulfill you, it does give a freedom from the temptation itself. So I, I pray you experience that, Emily, but also that you would have a sense of hope that this time of suffering will not last forever, that there is healing in store for you and for your husband with the particular trials going on right now. Jesus, we ask this for our dear sister Emily and for her husband, that they would have a vision of the joy that lies before them, and that that joy, that vision of glory, would give them the courage to to carry this cross with you, in union with you. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You're in our prayers, Emily. Thank you for honoring us with 
the trust that you've shown in, in sending this question. If you have a question that you would like us to answer, please send it our way. We can't guarantee that we'll get to it. We do receive many, many questions, but here's a certainty. If you don't send your question, there's no chance that we'll answer it. <laughs> if you do send it, there's a chance that we will. We also know that there are people you know that need to hear the podcast that you've heard today. Will you click that share button and send this out to the people you know who need to hear it? That's how uh, you can help us to spread this good news. It really is good news that we are male and female made in the image and likeness of God. And it really is true that there is an enemy who seeks to rob us from that good news. The good news is that even when we've been robbed, and to some degree we all have been, we can be restored in the full truth of who we are as men and women who are unrepeatable, indispensable gifts of life and love, and we can really and truly become what we are. West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.